This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Kevin McDonald, thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. Yeah, looking forward to it. How are you holding up on the battleground of the information war? Well, okay. I mean, um, so far the FBI hasn't come to arrest me or anything. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing, yeah, I worry about it sometimes because, yeah, our government is increasingly uh, authoritarian and they are very much on the left and uh, they they really are worried about people like me i know that but uh we'll see i i'm i'm optimistic i'm always an optimist frankly why would they worry about you well maybe because uh I, you know because of my writing on, on jews uh uh, the the the, the uh, Jewish community is very powerful in this country, and uh, there's been an upsurge of uh, anti-Jewish uh, rhetoric. Uh, the the rap star, you know, Kanye West, uh, came out recently with uh, some stuff about Jewish power that 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 that, that, that Jews were responsible for what they would call canceling him in, in the entertainment industry. And he lost billions of dollars in this, and and uh, you know he said things like you know that 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 you know if you look at Hollywood that that they're very powerful, and uh, he he had to uh, you know when he said that um, they went all over him, and you know he hasn't been heard from much since uh, in the media or anything, and and I don't think he's able to perform at concert venues or anything, so. I mean, they're very worried about this. And of course, Kanye West is way more, he's, he's made better, better known than I am. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're very concerned about this. Yeah, I, I, I'm a retired professor of psychology. Uh, I, I was at uh, California State University in Long Beach, uh, California. And um, I've been retired for about eight years now. I did a lot of publishing. I, I didn't get to this about till 19, until the 1990s. I started reading and writing about Jewish issues. Before that, I, and even after that, I, I was much more of a personality psychologist. And uh, but my, my real background is evolutionary psychology, and so I was very interested in uh, groups and evolution. And you know what better group to study than Jewish groups, because there's an awful lot of history about them. Uh, they've had a lot of, you know, violence over the centuries directed against them, and they have directed violence against other peoples. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, I, I decided that was a really good topic. But you know, <laughs> what it turned out into be was really uh, controversial and sort of dominated my life ever since. Um, because, uh, you know, they, uh, I, mean, I, I was, you know, when I was still teaching back around 2008 or so, they had a, a big uh, thing on campus where the, um, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation League, 
big Jewish organizations came on campus. They tried to get me fired. Uh, they couldn't get me fired because we have protection for professors in America. They can speak what they want um, without getting into that, which is another thing that, that people on the left want to get rid of uh, because for, for them, the uh, the idea that professors can't be fired is horrible because you might get somebody in there who disagrees with them and they don't want that. And and so it's, uh, it's a big deal. Uh, the whole idea of censorship. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, you just didn't see much... Uh, uh, about censorship. It just didn't happen. But now, especially because we have social media and anybody can get on there and they don't even have to give their names. They can be anonymous. And so people get on social media and they'll criticize the Jews or something or whatever. And uh, that that is something that they're very worried about because, you know, if, you know, in fact, when I was growing up, uh, all three of the big bra- bra- television broadcasters were owned by Jews. Plus, they, you know, the own major newspapers like the New York Times. And there was a general, you know, uh, control of information. But the, the Internet and social media has allowed it to sort of get out. And uh, uh, so they're very busy clamping down on that. And, you know, there's been a lot of scandal about Twitter, which is sort of the main social media company in a way because it's... Uh, you know, so many people are on there from all different perspectives and and they uh, interact with each other. And so, so Twitter, uh, you know, was very consciously censoring a lot of information. Uh, and then Elon Musk bought it, who's from South Africa, by the way, mm. uh, as you know, I'm sure. Uh, he is uh, the wealthiest man in the world at the time. And now he's the like second wealthiest or something. But he uh, he bought Twitter and he released all these files showing the collaboration between the government, the FBI and Twitter to get rid of information. And it had to do with, uh, you know, ethnic differences and and um, so-called racism and and Jewish issues. And it had to do with, with the vaccines and all the whole COVID thing. So it. Um, that that is uh, what they're concerned about. They're concerned about social media, the ability for people to communicate in these networks that they can't control. And of course, what they want to do is control them. And and uh, you know they have expended an awful lot of effort in that direction. When the term anti-Semitic or anti-Semitism comes up, what does it actually mean? Does it even exist? Well, yeah. I mean, people can you know, oppose Jewish uh, interests in some way, and, and then they're called an anti-Semite. I mean, right now, uh, if you criticize Israel, that is called anti-Semitism. Even though you're not really criticizing Jews, you're, you're criticizing a certain country. You're criticizing Israel uh, because of how they treat the Palestinians. I mean, they, they have apartheid there, and uh, they, they, uh, they engage in ethnic cleansing. They, you know, they keep uh, settling on the West Bank. And they, um, and they, uh, you know, are generally completely oblivious to human rights, typical human rights, which they, which they champion in the United States. I mean, they, they're all about it, you know, in favor of immigration, you know, replacing the white people. Uh, but when it comes to Israel, they have a very uh, strict immigration policy, only Jews, and the American Jewish community supports them to the hill. And, and right now, you have people, especially on the sort of progressive left, the real, you know, far left people in this country are very critical of Israel because 
Yeah, if you're at all consistent, you have to oppose Israel. I mean, they're they're advocating all this social justice, left-wing political programs, social programs for the United States. But then when, when they look at Israel, it ain't there. And uh, so there, people on the left, some of them are ethnic, like they're, they're, they're from the Middle East, like uh, um, this woman, Tlaib, uh, who's from Michigan, she represents Egypt Congress and she's Palestinian. And you have Elon Omar from uh, Ethiopia or Somalia or whatever. And she's very critical of Israel, you know, because they are Muslim partly. And, and so uh, these people, uh, when the ADL, the big Jewish organizations, funneled huge amounts of money into the campaigns against those two women uh, for that reason. And it's just more common now on the left. I mean, you, if you have any intellectual consistency, you can't be gung-ho for social justice in America and uh, support Israel to the hilt. In fact, the, the stronger support for Israel now is among conservatives. You know, the Republican Party is much more unified in support of Israel than the Democrat Party. So uh, that's where we're at now. But yeah, anti-Semitism does exist in the sense that people uh, are upset with Jews as a community. You know, that, not individual Jews. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, you can... There, there's always been Jews that have been bad people or something, and that doesn't mean anything because there are bad people in every group. But what, you know, an anti-Semite will be concerned about the Jewish community as a whole, what their policies are and uh, how that impacts their interests and the interests of human rights and things like that. So um, that's why, the you know, the these Jewish defense organizations are, you know, very active and they're playing what we call whack-a-mole. You know, as soon as they, as something happens, they have to go after it. And then if something else happens and then, you know, Kanye West comes along and then uh, somebody, some other politician or some, somebody on a podcast like Joe Rogan, a famous podcaster in this country. I and mean, he's got like 10 million subscribers or something. And, uh, you know, he said things that, 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 that Jews are very powerful and uh, um, in the media and that kind of thing, well, which is obvious to anybody. But you can't say anything about Jews uh, that, that would fit into Jewish stereotypes, like, like Jews are wealthy. Well, Jews, Jews are make, make more money, that they, that they uh, control the media, that they uh, control the political process via, the, via money and media. Uh, so you know, that, that's where we're at here. Uh, mm. where they have to constantly cover up things that are sort of obviously true. Why is that the case? I mean, it's not like that with Christians or with other groups. Yeah, well, they, they you know, they, they're very aggressive. And, and they, uh, you know, they, if you talk to Jews, if you understand how they see themselves, they have this idea that Jews are this innocent victims that have been persecuted throughout history. You know, back in, in the ancient world, the, the Romans destroyed the temple. They, 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 uh, the, the Roman army went to Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. They killed an awful lot of Jews. They enslaved other Jews. Uh, and so they, it goes back to that. Uh, and well, or even the Babylonian captivity, you know, the, the Pharaoh in Egypt expelling the Jews. And uh, so, and then you have in the Middle Ages, they were expelled from many European 
uh, countries and, and uh, kingdoms and so on. And then, you know, that just kept going. And then in modern times, you have in Russia, they had pogroms against the Jews. You had laws against Jews throughout Eastern Europe. And then, uh, and then you have the, the Holocaust with the Nazis. So uh, th that that's how they see their history. It's called the lachrymose, meaning tearful, Jewish history. That's how they see themselves. They're eternally persecuted. So when they see someone coming up and, and criticize him, they go crazy because, they, you know, they can't let anything go. Uh, whereas other people, you know, the criticism is... It's no big deal. But for them, they see any, any criticism is the beginning of a huge torrent that could result in a Holocaust or something horrible to Jews. Most of your books are still available on Amazon, but the one that, that, that I'm chatting to you about now, The Culture of Critique, is not. That must mean That's that great. it's... That must mean that it's over the target. Okay, um, actually, there, there are two, two or three of my books are banned on Amazon. The other big one is Separationist Discontents, which is about the history of anti-Semitism. I mean, you, you, I just told you how I think Jews see themselves, but I don't see it that way. I think that Jews have provoked, uh, you know, all the big outbreaks of anti-Semitism have because, been because of Jewish behavior. So, <clears throat> I, you know, that book is now banned. And I noticed it's cultural critique and separationist discontents are both banned now on Barnes and Noble, which is the other big bookseller online in America. Um, so if you want to buy my books, you have to go to the, to the publisher, which is uh, Author House. And, uh, and I, you know, if you go to my website, I give you how all the information and links and stuff. But mm. the, the point is that, yeah, my work is, is seen as dangerous to the Jewish community. And if you go to the Anti-Defamation League's uh, website, you'll see a big page about me because well, they have all this stuff. And I, if you go to my, my Wikipedia page, I mean, it's just absolutely scurrilous what they say about me. It's disgusting. But, uh, you know, truth is not really what they care about. Uh, and I don't think they ever have. So uh, anyway, about cultural critique, uh, the, the point of cultural critique, it's, just, it's a third of three books. Uh, on Judaism that I wrote. And, and uh, the first one is still on Amazon. It's called The People I Shall Dwell Alone. It, uh, it's about historical Jewish communities, uh, uh, really in, until about the, 20, the 20th century or, or you know, early 19th century, uh, and how they lived, how they got along with other people, how they regulated their internal behavior and all that. And that that's you know, that was pure history. No, nobody got too upset about it. It was from an evolutionary perspective. I was saying Jews were a, a group that, uh, you know, had their own interests and, and uh, were doing and um, were provoking uh, other people sometimes, but it didn't really get into the. And then I wrote uh, Separation of Discontents about anti-Semitism. And that one, you know, the first book got well reviewed. People liked it in, in my field, evolutionary psychology. But uh, you know, the second one, uh, you didn't get many reviews at all, and and, they, and a couple hostile ones. And the third one, Culture Critique, got almost no reviews, and, and uh, they just ignored it. Uh, and it wasn't until 20 years later that uh, this guy, uh, they, his name is Nathan Kaufness, started going after me. He published an article in an academic journal. And uh, whenever that happens, these academic journals won't allow me to reply. So I replied on my website, 
but uh, that that continues. But anyway, uh, cultural critique is is about Jewish intellectual and political movements in the 20th century. And that's the thing. If you're talking about what happened in the Middle Ages, that's one thing. But if you're talking about the 20th century, that is way too close to home and because it goes right into the present. And uh, several of the chapters are on, on Jewish intellectual movements, how they were they were started by Jews and the main characters were Jews. They surrounded themselves with other Jews and, and they their theories that they pushed, these intellectual theories that they pushed were designed to combat anti-Semitism. Uh, and, you know, in general, advanced Jewish interests present Jews as as good people and, and uh, any dislike of Jews is completely irrational hatred uh, and that sort of thing. But anyway, so I, I talk about uh, anthro various academic disciplines, like anthropology is in the chapter two, uh, right up front. Franz Boas was a Jewish uh, anthropologist, and he really single-handedly changed American anthropology. In the early 20th century, uh, you know, racial theories were very strong. They had the idea that, you know, the white race would conquer the entire world pretty much, um, had, uh, you know, had this sort of peculiar uh, superiority and uh, it was a time of Darwinism and, and natural selection and, and people really believed in, in, the, in sort of these uh, genetic uh, developmental theories. And then they had the idea that cultures uh, evolved from sort of primitive to more uh, advanced levels. And at the top was, was current European culture. Well, Boas didn't like that at all. And uh, so he set out to, to prove that wrong. Um, but as my treatment shows, he was not really a scientist. He was an ideologist and, and he, and he uh, a very political figure. And his main concern was to combat those theories because he thought they were not good for Jews. And um, so I show in the chapter, and I'm revising the book now, by the way, and, and uh, getting a lot of new material in there showing how, you know, Boas was very active, interacting with the, the activist Jewish community, that he was supported by wealthy Jews, and, uh, that uh, his students, his early students, were predominantly Jews, uh, who then became famous themselves because they, they, were, they became anthropologists and, and important figures in the academic world. And um, they, they were very political about controlling the American Anthropological Association and, and therefore the academic uh, anthropology. And to this day, anthropology is dominated by these sort of leftist radicals. Uh, and uh, it hasn't changed in that sense. Uh, there, you know, there are a few, and there always have been, but the main thrust of, of anthropology has always been cultural relativism. All cultures are the same; they're all equal, and, and any and any culture can do what whatever uh, they they can. Uh, you know, European cultures there's certainly not no idea of cultural superiority or racial superiority or anything like that, uh, and so that came to dominate American anthropology and. Um, then other, another chapter deals with psychoanalysis, uh, Sigmund Freud and his, um, theory of, of psych psychoanalysis that, uh, and I show in the chapter that the, the theory is completely bonkers and, and nuts. 
and uh, but it was advanced to to combat anti-Semitism, uh, and and Freud himself. And, and, and it's another thing about you know parts of the uh, chapter two. I just learned today that Boas made made uh, all these alliances with with Jews with Jewish uh, uh, intellectuals who were you know racial Zionists. They they believed in the, in the racial superiority of the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, they, they hated, you know, the idea that Germans were a superior race, but they definitely liked the idea that Jews were a superior race. And uh, so um, Boas was interacting with them at the same time, rejecting genetics, rejecting. Uh, the, the whole point was to combat, was to further Jewish interests, to uh, combat uh, what was going on in Germany at the time. And um, without regard, really, to what alliances you made or anything. So chapter four on psychoanalysis, uh, uh, you know, part of the chapter is that psychoanalysis had a very destructive effect on on Western culture that, uh, you know, it it sort of enabled uh, sexual uh, freedom and um, that, uh, you know, you had the decline of of. you know, chastity and, and pardon a tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so now we're seeing, and this has continued now in the contemporary world with the transsexual movement and all that. Um, but chapter five is on the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School were were Marxists, and and and, and Marxism was. Uh, really very common, very mainstream in the, in the Jewish community in the early 20th century. And uh, the Jews were very supportive of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, even though millions of people were being murdered uh, by Stalin. Uh, and if you look at who was murdering them, there were these Jews uh, very prominently involved in security forces. And, um, for example, this guy, Kaganovich, uh, was uh, oversaw the starvation in Ukraine. They killed like three million, many many Ukrainians uh, intended to do that. And uh, of course, Ukraine was a historically an area of anti-Jewish sentiment because Jews had lived there for many centuries and and alienated the, the local population because of their of their behavior, in my opinion. And um, then, uh, so they were Marxists. At a time, even in, in the mainstream Jewish community, when you, you just had a lot of support for communism, um, and uh, you know, communists, uh, communist Jews were the main uh, spies during the uh, in the nineteen forties and fifties. Uh, there were, you know, there was a big anti-communist push there in this country, and the Jews were very much involved uh, as targets of that. But the Frankfurt School started out as Marxist. But then, you know, in Germany, there's classical Marxists. If you're a classical Marxist, you believe in class struggle, right? It's, it's the uh, rich against the poor, the capitalists against the workers. Uh, but uh, for, for Marx, for, for the Frankfurt School, they had the idea that, you know, this really wasn't a good theory for what was happening in Germany, because they could see that in Germany, the working class was for Hitler. And, uh, and so they were supporting this. And, and so they changed their theory and, and uh, it became less about classical Marxism as it was about ethnicity. The real enemy, according to the Frankfurt School, was white ethnocentrism. 
that ethnocentric whites are the problem. Like in, in Germany, you could see ethnocentric whites uh, as part of the establishment. They, they ran the country in the 1930s. And uh, so, but then at, right after the war, they, they started doing this research and uh, they attempted to show, and I, I criticized their work, of course, but uh, the, the idea was that ethnocentrism is a terrible thing. And it goes right back to the family. And so they were pathologizing, you know, sort of normal Christian families uh, as, as, because uh, they might uh, have a, a strong sense of family pride. And they, they felt family pride then fed into ethnocentrism. And so you had to sort of, uh, that they prized families that were, you know, not getting along, families that had strained relations really with their children. They, they, they prized families where the children were not ambitious and upwardly mobile, where the families wanted to have good marriages for their children and that sort of thing. So it was a, a complete onslaught against uh, Western culture, American culture, and, uh, and, and against the family. But mainly, you know, the, the problem was ethnocentric white people. And they never talked about ethnocentric Jews. Uh, with, you know, Jews are far more ethnocentric than white people are. Um, in fact, I, I wrote a book in 2019 about Western individualism. We Europeans, we tend to be individualistic, Western Europeans. And uh, that means we, we don't form ethnocentric groups very easily. Uh, we can, uh, but it, it takes some, some doing. And, you know, the, uh, in Germany, certainly they, they developed that. But, uh, you know, it took a long time. And now after the war, they've completely destroyed anything like that. And Germans are the least ethnocentric people in the world right now, I think. But anyway, um, so that, that was chapter five and chapter six. I, I summarized all this and I talked about the uh, New York intellectuals, which is another very influential group in this country. They, they uh, started out as Marxists, you know, Trotsky, but they were Trotskyists as opposed to Stalinists. And, uh, you know, then Stalin uh, assassinated Trotsky in 1940 or 39 or something. And uh, you started to see uh, Stalin, especially after World War II, Stalin started clamping down on the Jews, partly because, you know, um, Golda Meir, who was from Israel, became the prime minister of Israel later on, she, she went to Russia. And all of a sudden, all these Russian Jews that, you know, people thought that, you know, Judaism had basically been abolished by the by communism, but they turned out in droves. They were wildly enthusiastic about about uh, Golda Meir. And Stalin, you know, was really, was really concerned about that. And in general, the whole thing changed from early on in the, in the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia you know, they've suppressed the Russians and they suppressed the, the, the uh, there was a, a strong German minority there. They suppressed them. Jews rose to the top. Jews dominated Russia and, and in, uh, in the early decades of the Soviet Union. But then after World War II, Jews started getting pushed out. And a lot of people think that Stalin was about to deport the Jews, put them somewhere in Central Asia. Uh, and then he got he died, maybe assassinated. Um, and uh, but they kept purging Jews from the top positions in the Soviet Union. 
and, and so these these uh, these New York intellectuals uh, were definitely they're very strongly Jewish, and they saw persecution going on against Jews in the Soviet Union, and so they became conservative, uh, so, sort of neoconservatives, we say. They were sort of the, the early neoconservatives. They're very strongly Jewish, uh, but they saw communism as bad for the Jews in the end. And uh, so they moved to the right they, and, and they made alliances. They, in fact, the American Central Intelligence Agency, you know, the main uh, spy agency for America, they, uh, they recruited these guys because they were useful. Because they were prominent intellectuals, they were centered in New York, but then they got into universities and they were had uh, a lot of book publishers and and they, they were very prominent intellectuals. And and uh, so from the CIA's point of view, they were anti-communist. And so they recruited these Jews who were also anti-communist uh, for different reasons. I mean, for, for the neoconservatives, it's all about, about Jews being persecuted. Uh, the CIA were American patriots. But they recruited them, and uh, you have people like Sidney Hook, very prominent professor of philosophy and uh, NYU, and, and and he uh, and others. There's a whole lot of names in there. Uh, they formed a very cohesive group, uh, and they were all on the same page about uh, all these issues. They started magazines like Commentary, uh, which is a big Jewish public, published uh, magazine was edited by neoconservatives and still is, I guess. Um, and uh, they uh, became very influential in, in American um, politics, but also art and literature. You had art critics like Clement Greenberg, uh, who, uh, you know, would promote would promote uh, people like Jackson Pollock with it. And they just throw canvas, paint on a canvas and call it art. Uh, and they very much opposed uh, aspects of traditional American art, which were very sort of populist, you know, where you'd have average Americans uh, presented in a favorable light or something like that. Uh, they hated that kind of art. And uh, they, they, they championed, you know, um, postmodernism and they, they, they championed uh, abstract expressionism. And you know, that's where we get Andy Warhol and the whole craziness of the contemporary art scene. Uh, which has con just continued to be crazier and crazier now uh, to the point of uh, <laughs> it just gets ludicrous. And if you're an artist, it's probably pretty hard to find something uh, that would shock anyone at this point because it's all been done. Because the whole point of art is to shock people. But anyway, uh, so then chapter seven is on immigration. Immigration uh, is, in a way, the, the biggest issue, political issue there is. And because uh, immigration determines what the country is going to look like in the future. And uh, Jews going back to the really to the 19th century, but certainly uh, in the 20th century and late 19th century, very opposed to any restrictions on immigration. They wanted immigration to come from any ethnic group from anywhere in the world. Uh, and they had really no interest in preserving America as a white majority uh, European culture. And so I document that. It's a very long chapter. Uh, various Jewish activists, uh, 
during the 1920s. They, they, into the 1920s, uh, America finally got around to restricting immigration. Until then, really, pretty much anyone could come in uh, if they if they did. But at that time, you know, people say in Africa or or you know Afghanistan or someplace, they couldn't get it to America even if they wanted to because the transportation and all that it just didn't happen uh, but uh immigration was coming from europe at the time and they they wanted to shut it off because and the main reason and i think Jew, jewish uh, historians would totally agree with this that the main reason was jewish immigration at the time the, the immigrants the jewish immigrants coming from from europe came from eastern europe and they were they tend to be orthodox uh, hasidic jews they tended to look different because they dressed differently uh, and they were very clannish. Uh, a lot of the Jews, uh, some, including some of those, were Marxists, you know, and at a time when, you know, the Soviet Union was, was murdering millions of people. And, and there was a fear of communism. And so they wanted to restrict immigration, but the Jews wanted to keep it open. They fought tooth and nail, but, but in 1924, the Jews lost the battle. And they enacted a restrictive inter, inter, immigration law that kept America pretty much as it was um, until uh, until the 1965 law, which again was a product of Jewish activism, as I recount. And so, uh, at this point, we've got you know tens of millions of uh, of non-Europeans coming into the country, and of course that's happening in Europe as well. American culture has seeped out throughout throughout Europe and uh, um, and uh, so the influence is pervasive and that's that's really the the last substantive chapter the, the last chapter of the book simply uh, talks about where are we going to go from here and um, what can we do uh, and I don't advocate any violence or anything but you know, my fervent wish would be that Jews would stop doing what they're doing uh and and try to get on our side for once i mean i i think some jews see that in their interest that they should side more with the white majority because partly because of israel first of all most uh um most of these non-whites don't care about jews or the holocaust anywhere near as, as the jews would like them to and they don't care about israel whereas white christians are some of the most prominent supporters of Israel because of how they read the Bible. The Bible uh, that they read, it tends to be uh, sort of pro-Israel and the whole culmination of this vision uh, is, is to establish Israel as a homeland for the Jews. And after that, there will be a second coming of Christ and, and you'll have end times. And I mean, it's cra crazy religious stuff, but uh, a lot of American white Christians believe this and as I said before, the Republican Party is much stronger in support of Israel than the Democrat Party. And uh, that, that's something that they see. And, and they're very concerned about the left. I just Today I'm on Twitter and I tweeted something that, uh, you know, or yesterday that this, this Jewish billionaire named Jeremy Yass, who's uh, the richest man in Pennsylvania, he uh, is starting a, a big money uh, organization to try to focus on on the left, to try to get rid of this sort of radical leftist philosophy 
um, that is so opposed to Israel. Uh, they don't phrase it in those terms, but that's obviously where it is. If you look at this guy, he's extremely Zionist and uh, supports the, the right wing in Israel, uh, which is becoming ever more right wing. It's almost become indefensible. Even even you know establishment newspapers like the New York Times are printing you know more balanced articles on Israel now uh, after decades of sort of bowing down to the Israel lobby. Because it's Jewish owned, partly. Just for the sake of clarity, uh, when we speak about Jews, what are we referring to? Because are we referring to birth or belief? Well, it, it's certainly a matter of identity. Um, that some, a lot of Jews are, are born to Jewish parents and, and uh, they some of them may break away from Judaism. There are there are renegade Jews, people like Gilad Atzman, who's a jazz musician, but he also writes a lot on, on Jewish issues. He He's Israeli. He lives in the UK. I don't think he could go back to Israel because he, he is so critical of Israel. Uh, and uh, there are people like that. So, you, you know, I, I think he calls himself an ex-Jew. Because he uh, does not identify with it anymore. And I take him at his word for that. I, I don't think he, uh, he's still on the left, you know, he's all multicultural and everything, but he uh, does not accept uh, the, the, what's going on in, uh, in Israel. And uh, been very vocal about that. And I think he's persona non grata in Israel. They, they don't want him there. Um, so there are Jews like that, not very many. And then there's some Jews that, you know, they marry non-Jews and they just don't care much about it. Uh, but if you, you know, you always have to look at where the power is. Where is the money going? Where is the media power? And that's that's where you try to analyze Jewish power. Um, <clears throat> so if you talk about Israel, you, you have the American Israel Public Affairs Committee uh, called APAC. And they, uh, you know, they are the, the main uh, activist group that funds pro-Israel candidates. And, and they will, if, if a candidate comes up and, and really opposes Israel, they will funnel money to the opposition. And they don't care really what the opposition, what else the, the opposition is talking about, but they will fund. If you're pro-Israel, you'll, you'll get their backing. And they're very powerful. Uh, but as I said, uh, you know, there are some politicians now who are critical of Israel and they are in Congress. So uh, um, and in the last election, this that last November, they put a lot of money into defeating uh, various candidates and they won most of those, but they did not win all of them. So, for example, Elon Omar, they want to get rid of her. But you know, now, as soon as she... This is a good, great story of how politics works in America. Elon Omar is, uh, as I say, she's from North Africa or, you know, S Sudan or something. And she's a congresswoman from, from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, she uh, said, you know, when you're talking about Israel, why, why America supports Israel, she said, it's all about the Benjamins, meaning it's all about the money, because Benjamin Franklin is the picture on our $100 bill. Uh, and when she said that, that was regarded as anti-Semitic. And you just can't say that. 
and she got pilloried for it. She eventually sort of apologized, uh, but the APEC, APEC went after her anyway. Uh, but they failed. I mean, she she got you know she's living this just with a lot of Ethiopians or whatever, and they vote for her, and uh, she's back in Congress. But the Republicans, uh, as I said, they are, are far more pro-Israel. They they have kept her off of these committees that she can't be on the Foreign Affairs Committee in Congress, so she can't talk about Israel much. And you know that's the way it works in this country. You know, uh, the Republicans are totally under under the control of the Israel lobby, partly for ideological reasons. Like I said, a lot of them are Christians and so on. And there's just sort of a consensus there. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens. But that's where you always have to look. You have to look at where the power is. And, you know, I also wrote a paper and I'll include in the revision um, of my book uh, about, well, I, I've written a couple of papers and I've added to a whole lot of things. But uh, one is on, we, we talked about, about the neoconservatives. Now I have a whole chapter on neoconservatives showing it is a Jewish movement started by Jews. Their main motive is to support Israel. And uh, they've been responsible for all these wars, like uh, the war in uh, Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. Um, they are now strongly in support of the war in Ukraine and um, that sort of thing. And um, <clears throat> so, uh, which is why America is so gung-ho. And, and you look at where the power is. I mean, if you look at Jews in, in the Biden administration, in the Defense Department, you have uh, these two strong pro-Jewish operatives right at the top, right under, and, and, and the, right under the uh, Secretary of Defense. And, and they are the ones who have pushed this. Victoria Nuland, for example, is the main force in the 2014 Ukrainian revolution that toppled the pro-Russian government. And they are pushing this Ukraine war to the hilt. Eventually, the United States is going to give Ukraine all the weapons they have, including uh, F-15 jets and everything else. <clears throat> they haven't quite done that yet, but they will if they think the Ukraine is losing. And um, the State Department is run by Anthony Blinken, who's a Zionist, uh, Jew. Uh, you have uh, the Secretary of Treasury is Janet Yellen. Uh, she's Jewish. Uh, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas is head of Homeland Security. And Homeland Security is the department that's in charge of immigration and, and protecting the borders. Well, under him, there have been no borders. And millions, literally 10, you know, 5 million people at least have crossed the border in the last two years. There's just no no stopping them. They walk in and they say, well, you know, please report in, in a year or two and uh, and we'll see how you're doing. And we can take up your claim for uh, refugee status. These people are not refugees. They're just trying to get to uh, live a better life. Although they'll have a story about that because that's what they're told to do. Uh, but anyway, uh, this Jewish uh, uh, head of the Department of Homeland Security is, you know, complete gung-ho pro-immigration activist. And, uh, you know, he's, he's very Jewish. So the power right now in this country, if you look at the media, you know, so much of the media is owned, owned by Jews. And that's why when, when Elon Musk took over Twitter, oh, that, that people, you know, liberal Twitter, liberal, liberal media were just aghast that you'd have someone 
who was not a liberal. Elon Musk, it's hard to know what he believes, but this guy uh, is definitely not on the a side of cancel culture and, and ending free speech and, and all that. And uh, he uh, he's made some comments that sound quite conservative. Uh, so they hated that. Uh, they loved it when Twitter was just run by these leftists. And uh, of course, YouTube is, is owned by Google, which is a Jewish company. Facebook is owned by uh, Mark Zuckerberg and and then you know, the New York Times and all these newspapers and uh, MSNBC and uh, NBC owned by Jewish companies, CBS. The, you know, the big influential mainstream media in this country is still run and owned by Jews. And uh, so when you have an exception to that, like Fox Network is to some extent an exception, but not very much. I mean, they, they, they don't talk about Jewish issues in, in any critical way. Except, like, this is a guy, Tucker Carlson, who mm. uh, went back after uh, the Anti-Defamation League because the Anti-Defamation attacked him because of his views on immigration. Well, Tucker Carlson just went to the ADL's webpage and found a page where it said the ADL totally supported Israel's immigration policy, which was restricted only to Jews. And they were saying, well, you know, if we just let the Palestinians take over the country, if we... If we allow them to vote, then the Palestinians would take over the country eventually, and that would be very dangerous for Jews. Well, same thing in America. If you have, you see these immigrants come into the country, and a lot of them, as soon as they get here, they they are taught to hate white America, and uh, so many of them do, and uh, so uh, that is the future. But but you know, that Jewish activists like Mayorkas want to you know, replace white America as soon as possible with non-whites in the hopes that uh, you won't have any reaction, uh, that the whites will be powerless. And uh, that's really what we are facing here. But this, Tucker Carlson called him out on that. You're, you're hypocrites. You, you mm -hmm. believe that for your people, but you don't believe it for us. And uh, that's, that's the reality. Kevin, uh, how did this over-representation occur? How did it emerge well first of all jews are very smart you know they're they have a higher average iq than white americans they um they uh stick together so they cooperate very well and and they they create these organizations like these movements that i talked about in culture critique the neoconservatives um and so on and they they uh cohere together and they uh um, will, uh, you know, achieve power that way. And, and the other thing is Jewish wealth. Jews uh, have been very, uh, you know, that's one of the anti-Jewish uh, stereotypes that goes back centuries, that Jews are very concerned about money. Well, Jews have been very successful financially in this country. Uh, industries like, like Wall Street, um, Hollywood, uh, all those uh, areas uh, of America, um, but many, many other uh, areas. So these Jews have money, and what they do with it, that they contribute to politics. So they contribute to the, the Anti-Defamation League. They commit it. They, they, uh, they uh, donate to the pro-Israel lobby. 
that makes them very powerful because American politics is not really a democracy in many ways. It's really run by money. You know, if you're a politician, you cannot get elected without big money now. They spend millions and millions of dollars on, on races in the Senate and billions of dollars for the presidential race. And, uh, you know, even a, a congressman, you know, uh, where they, they're 435 uh, members of the House of Representatives. Any Those races are very, are intensely scrutinized there. They are uh, funded very well. And if you look at the top donors in the Democrat Party, almost all the, all the money comes from wealthy Jews. In the Republican Party, about 40, 50 percent or so. And... Uh, so the Republican Party is is less that way. But at the same time, you can't just pass up 40 percent of your donor base. And so uh, the, the Jews in the Republican Party have, by and large, been, you know, pro-Israel, neoconservative Jews. They're they're um, very uh, strongly Jewish. And they um, uh, but that's where the, the power comes from, it comes from money. And uh, they also finance these, these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations that are involved in immigration activism and various other causes uh, supporting LG, uh, you know, the transgender movement and so on. So it's a, it's a very powerful group. It's enabled by money. And the other, the other area, the big area of influence is the academic world. I mean, I talked about BOAS uh, taking mm-hmm. over anthropology. Well, the Jews really... Uh, ascended in the academic world. The academic world, you know, people think, oh, it's ivory tower, it's not important. It's, it is very important source of power in, in Western cultures. And uh, because, uh, you know, if you look at uh, media accounts, uh, they influence the media. Mm. And it's, it's very common, say, for the New York Times to have uh, op-eds, uh, uh, editorials written by professors. Because, you know, if you have the op-ed from a Harvard professor, from Yale professor, that has a lot of uh, a lot of uh, weight to it, and uh, I'm just uh, reading. Uh, I'm going to write an article about it, I guess, on, on Jews in the legal profession. And one of the areas that Jews really targeted was the legal profession, uh, civil because rights. that's another area. That's what uh, civil rights, civil rights movement. Uh, yeah, but the whole judicial movement. And uh, to, to change uh, the way jurists think, and um, you know the whole um, trend since the 1960s, which is when Jews really came to power in this country, right, where the Jewish power took off in the 1960s, and that's when you really see changes in law schools and the the the. Uh, the uh, journals of the law schools and uh, influencing uh, judicial opinions to move to the left. Uh, and for example, the, the idea that the, the Constitution is not set in stone, that you have to interpret it in terms of modern times. Well, that means whatever they want it to mean. And so um, in a sense, we don't really have a Constitution anymore. But now, you know, because of Trump, Trump appointed these three conservative justices to the Supreme Court. And, and that sort of a game changer because, uh, you know, they uh, they are conservative and they're, you know, they're not that old. And so they'll be around for a while. 
And uh, we still have judicial review in this country. You can, uh, if they enact a law that, that uh, um, they, they can review it to see if it is constitutional. And so all these attempts at censorship that the left is trying to get going ultimately will be ruled unconstitutional because, uh, you know, it, it's just not, uh, um, the First Amendment to our Constitution says Congress uh, shall not abridge uh, free speech. Uh, free speech is the First Amendment and in a way it's the most important amendment because without it, you can't discuss issues. And what kind of democracy do you have without that? So um, we'll see what happens. But the left is now doing everything they can to to uh, thwart the court. There's a lot of talk about adding more justices. They've got this liberal Biden in there now. If if they could instead have nine justices, they could put the 13 justices. They'd have a majority. So they could pull in four leftists to the Supreme Court, and that would be uh, a coup. Why is the Jewish collective, so anti-natural um, order, such as family, tradition, and all the things that we consider normal. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, and and I, as I was saying about the Frankfurt School, they saw the family as a sort of a hotbed of inculcating uh, racism, uh, ethnocentrism, and uh, traditional values. You know, in, in a, a good family situation, children receive a lot of their values from their parents. And, uh, you know, so you look back 1940s America, most people were quite religious. That was certainly true when I was growing up. And I went to Catholic schools my entire first 12 years. And um, they they saw that as bad because they were on the left and, and they saw any traditional values as bad. And where are, the, where are the traditional values coming from? They're coming from parents. And so now, uh, partly because of the Frankfurt School, but I think there's a big push on the left to get parents out of the equation. That uh, it's common now for teachers to, um, uh, you know, you've got students in their class and they, and they propagandize them in favor of transgenderism. So they say, uh, you know, you're a girl, but, you know, you may not really be a, a girl. You may be a boy at heart and uh, you may want to be a boy and not grow up to be a, a girl. You, if you identify as a girl, uh, there are things that, that can be done uh, and they, they advocate this for teenagers. Um, and um, but they keep the parents out of it. These schools don't tell the parents that the child has declared that they're the opposite sex or no sex or whatever. And because uh, they, they re see parents as bad. And so you have these, these left wing school boards that run the local school systems that, that these, these leftists have, you know, ran, they've run for the seats on these school boards and their whole policy is to keep parents out of the equation. And to do a top-down thing where where teachers are allowed to to do whatever they want, uh, but they have these books promoting transgenderism, they have books promoting homosexuality, they have very explicit sexual stuff going on, and uh, so that's where the left is now. And it's a direct result, I think, uh, of the long-term historical process, beginning with psychoanalysis. Because that's really what Freud was all about, just destroying the sexual 
uh, mores of early 20th century America, uh, late 19th century, the Victorian era, very prudish, and um, talking about, you know, wanting to destroy it. And, and uh, you know, it, it keeps happening more and more radical, crazier and crazier, completely devoid of any kind of data or anything. But they, uh, but they, uh, they're in charge in a lot of places, but it's more controversial. Parents are waking up. They go to these school board meetings and they're just furious about it. And they're, you know, in the last election, they, they got rid of some of these people and elected people that are more conservative and don't want pornography in the school library. Kevin, you're standing on the battleground of the information war and you're looking out at the horizon as the enemy is coming towards you. What is it that you see? I'm very concerned about the future because, you know, the left, part of the, the big reason why Mayorkas is, is doing this now, uh, admitting all these non-white people in the country, they, they, they believe these people will eventually become citizens. They will vote for Democrats. And a, a lot of these Democrats want non-citizens to be able to vote in this country. And, and that would favor the left. And if the left really gets the power they want, oh, man, I'll be in prison tomorrow. I mean, I, I, they, they will, they will uh, purge everybody that they don't like, put them in prison, take away their livelihood. They already do that. I mean, uh, they, they call this doxing, where they, they give information about people. Like you had these Twitter accounts, say, and you had a person on there who's saying things they don't like about Jews or something. And then they find out who it is and they publicize it. And then next thing you know, that person is fired from his job. That's what they want. They want to be able to control all that and to be able to uh, completely determine your life. If you're not on board politically, be like China, you know, where if you if you oppose this, you are going to be uh, uh, subject to uh, severe penalties. And uh, that's that's what they want. And uh it's going to be returned really to a communist state where there's no free speech and uh, where people uh, can uh, can be threatened by jail or worse. Worse, because, you know, the history, if you look at Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution, you had mass murder. And uh, these people have murder in their hearts. There's hate. It's all motivated by hate. Where can I get your work? Where can I find your books? Well, um, the main thing is to go to my website, um, kevinmacdonald.net. You know, spell my name, M-A-C-D-O-N-A-L-D.net. And um, uh, you look at the index there to see essays on the Jewish question, uh, Jewish issues. And there, my books on Jews are listed. All my, all my material is really there. Kevin McDonald, thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. Thank you. Enjoy it. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.